Thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Good evening, and welcome again to this uh, Bible study. Last week, for those who were not with us, we went over the first sense of Scripture called the literal sense. Scripture, according to the mind of the church, has a certain way in which it needs to be read. And what the church teaches us is that there are actually four senses of Scripture. The first one is called the literal sense. The literal sense is what was actually intended by the human author when he wrote a, that particular book, be it Genesis or Exodus or Luke, Mark or John. And the literal sense is the foundation upon which we can understand Scripture. Without it, without a proper understanding of the literal sense, we can get Scripture to say whatever we want Scripture to say. Last week, the week prior, that is, last um, segment, we went through some of the difficulties we can encounter when we read uh, Scripture, uh, trying to understand what it really meant. And I pointed out to you that there are apparent contradictions in Scripture, texts that seem to contradict each other. And if you were to only rely on Scripture, to explain Scripture, you're going to be in a bind. You're going to have difficulty. You're not going to be able to do that. I'm going to go over those difficulties today very, very quickly and give you hints as to how you resolve them. By the way, the, the assignment that I gave those who were present two weeks ago were to go home and invoke the Holy Spirit and ask the Holy Spirit guiding to guide each one of you, and try to understand and resolve those difficulties. Anyone tried that? Okay. Yes? Well, the fact that, for instance, in the three synoptics, we're told that Jesus was at the Last Supper. He actually celebrated the Passover. But John tells us he died before celebrating the Passover. But you see, the problem, that's a good approach. The idea would be, well, you know, one says Jesus healed Bartimaeus going into Jericho, and the other evangelist says he healed Bartimaeus leaving Jericho. Well, coming in, coming out, what's the big deal? Right? Actually, it is a very big deal. Why? Why is it such a big deal? Because it introduces the principle that in Scripture there are minor errors, but errors nonetheless. You would agree with me that it's not, it's not possible that he did it coming in and leaving out. It's one or the other, right? It can be both. So therefore, one of the two got it wrong. And if one of the two got it wrong on that particular point, how do we know that they didn't get it wrong on some other points? You see why it's problematic? In other words, we're saying, on that particular point, which is very minor, one of them didn't get it right. And it doesn't, really, it doesn't impact our faith. Correct. But how do we know that on other points, they didn't also get it wrong? 
You see, this is the principle that led the Jesus Seminar, a group of high-flying theologians, to actually declare that Jesus pretty much didn't do any of the miracles recorded in Scripture and didn't say any of the things we say he said. It essentially led to a complete denial of Scripture based on that principle. You see? You see why it's important? Ah, my point to you is not that there aren't solutions to these problems. There are. But my point that I'm trying to make is that those solutions are inscribed outside of Scripture, not in Scripture. Why am I insistent on that point? Why am I so insistent on that point? Very simple. If you value Scripture over and above the church, if in your systems of values, Scripture is above the church, your understanding of the faith and who Christ is, is fundamentally flawed. You understand what I'm saying? That's the proposition I'm putting before you. I'm trying to tell you that the church is way more important than Scripture. Now, I don't want you to take that to mean that Scripture is not important. Okay? Both are extremely important. Both are precious to us. We defend them with our lives. But the church is more important than Scripture. As long as we keep the focus on Scripture and Scripture only, there is no way that we are going to be really able to love the church. You understand? So there is a shift in mentality, especially in the United States, where we have a very strong Protestant current that is purely focused on Scripture, that impacts and affects us as Catholics. And we have to move away from this. That is why I'm so insistent that the literal sense makes sense only when read with the mind and heart of the church. Now, if I were to go through those, the first one, dealing with statues, is fairly, fairly easy to resolve once you read uh, Scripture in its context. The Lord did not want the Israelites to make statues of idols, meaning statues that will lead them away from him. Why? What is the context behind this? Now I step out of Scripture and I look at the larger context. It's, of course, the Egyptian cultic system. The way the Egyptians um, uh, worshipped. As you know, from archaeology, every Egyptian god has a representation, and most, if not all of them, have animal heads. So in Egypt, they did have images of these gods, and they worship them. Why am I pointing out the fact that they had animal heads? Recall the, the day, the sixth day of creation? The sixth day of creation is where men and animals were created, but man is above the animals because of the seventh day, right? When men end up worshipping gods in the form of animals, what have they done? They have placed themselves beneath them. You understand? Therefore, they're moving away from the truth. Why is that important? Because we learn through our imagination, we learn through our body. What we see, what we touch, what we feel, the architecture in which we are, all of that teach us about the truth. Or doesn't. So, God takes Israel out of Egypt and now he has to wean them from their past attachments. And so he tells them, you will not make these graven things. And knowing full well that not too long after they'll make one of them. Right? The golden calf. The golden calf being the representation of the Egyptian god Apis. The god of fertility. It wasn't only in terms of graven images. If you read carefully the restrictions in Exodus, you will see that he forbids them to sacrifice certain animals, but will for them to sacrifice other animals. And to our modern supermarket-oriented mind, where we go there and meat is represented as little packages, 
I think if you ask any modern city kid to draw a cow, they might draw you a little package, right? Because none of them have ever seen a cow, a cow slaughtered, right? We look at all of this, you know, God going into the guts of you sacrifice this, you don't sacrifice that, you can eat this piece but not that piece, and we wonder if God is some sort of a butcher. I mean, what's up with God giving them all these little details? We understand that it's important when we realize that all the animals that are forbidden to sacrifice were actually the animals that were sacrificed in Egyptian cult to the demons. And all the animals they are required to sacrifice are all animals which are represented as gods by the Egyptian. Hence, he's teaching them using what they know. It wasn't his best plan, I would say. It wasn't God's plan in the first place for them to sacrifice all these animals. But he works whatever he got. And that's what he got. He got people who are bloodthirsty. So he works with that. He says, okay, you got to sacrifice... You're hooked on sacrifice? Fine. You'll sacrifice. But I'm going to tell you how. Don't sacrifice these, you can sacrifice those. And all of these are those gods that they're killing on his altar. So that they can learn two things. Number one, he's the more powerful god. and He has to say to them, I'm more powerful than these. He doesn't say they don't exist. He says, I'm more powerful than them. And number two... He's forcing them to mortify themselves. That's why he gets them to do all these things. And that's why there's no contradiction between him saying, you will not make graven images, and yet at the same time, he says, make two cherubims. Why? Because cherub cherubims are servants, messengers, heavenly messengers of God, who serve him, and yet there are, at that point in time, above Israel, because Israel has no access to God's grace, whereas angels do. So he's teaching them about the hierarchy in heaven and what to look forward to. I may have mentioned this before. If I did not, I'll, I'll, let, me, let me mention it again. The way angelic being, whether demonic or heavenly, talk to us or have access to us is, is through the faculty of the imagination. The faculty of the imagination is the most angelic in the human being. It is through images that demons and angels talk to us. Mind you, they, they, don't, they don't have access to our imagination to, to stuff it with whatever images they want to. They're going to use whatever we put in it. Alright? So you watch horror movies, you watch television that is oriented towards things that is oriented towards um, ugliness, you watch programs that are, that are not godly, you're basically making your imagination fertile for demonic influence. You watch pious images, you shut down your TV or you bring it significantly down, and you control what gets in your imagination, only what is beautiful, and only what is holy, and only what is pure, and only what, is, what, what lifts you up, you allow your garden angel more influence over you. That's how the imagination works. That's why in the classic education, even one that was not Christian, it was highly important to form the imagination according to right reason. Very important. However, we've lost this, and we open, up, we open up the imagination wide to all that is not wholesome, and we wonder why our kids behave the way they do. So keep that in mind. Very important to control our imagination. All right. The birth of Jesus, um, the birth of Jesus took about two lectures to go through. And I would recommend, if you want to understand this, talk to Michael. He still has the lectures from Luke. And if you were to ask him for the tape on the lecture of Luke around chapter 3, you'll have one or two CDs where I go in detail on the whole issue of genealogy and how you can resolve it. Um, Ahimelech or Hobayathar is a very interesting one. Very, very interesting one. Um, th this one, I owe the explanation to Scott Hahn. He, he did a wonderful job explaining this. Here's the deal. 
Jesus is walking into the fields with his disciples and the and the um, the Pharisees. Thank you. The Pharisees come down on him because they're plucking grains of wheat and they're eating, and they're not supposed to pluck given it's the Sabbath. This is a rule they put forward. It was not a rule that was put forward from Moses. Right? You're not supposed to do this. Why are you doing it? How could you do that? Jesus' answer was, "Have you have you not read? Haven't you read what David did?" when he was hungry, how he went to the house of God, and he says, Abiathar was the high priest. And he ate the showbread, which is only reserved for the priest. And Jesus adds, there is yet someone who is greater than David here. He, he, and I'm sorry, he doesn't add that, but he, he indicates that. He's indicating that there is someone greater than David here. Because he says, the, you know, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, you go back to that passage in Samuel, you find it wasn't Abiathar, it was Ahimelech that was the high priest. Abiathar was his son. Abiathar was his son. So it sounds as if there is a contradiction in Mark where Jesus says Ahimelech, but in fact, you read in Samuel and you see it was Abiathar. The reason why we think it's a contradiction is because we take it at a completely literal sense. We do not see the irony. We don't sense the irony in Jesus' word. Here's what he's saying. If you understand the context back then, you'll realize that Eliakim, who was under... No, not Eliakim. Um, there was another priest under Samuel who was um, of the Zedekite line of the Levites. A separate line. Why is that important? Because the, the line of that priest, I think his name was Zadok, was approved by God. The line of Ahimelech that ends with Abiathar, was not approved by God. You understand? So it was the end of one line and the beginning of another. Alright? So the line of priesthood that went through Ahimelech ended with Abiathar. It was the last one. And it was not approved. And the line of Zadok was starting and it was approved. Okay? If you also know that if I want to stop a dynasty, if, if the king is ruling and I want to stop the dynasty, what do I do? I don't go and kill the king. I kill his son. That will stop the dynasty. Right? So, for instance, when Noah wanted to curse the line of Ham, his second son, he didn't curse Ham. He cursed Canaan, Ham's son. All right, and we're going to see why when we go through the covenant. So when you, when you understand that, you see what Jesus is after here. He went straight to Abiathar, not Ahimelech, his dad. And he's making a comparison. Because he's basically saying Ahimelech was sort of the, Abiathar was sort of the end of the line. It was a dead end. Zadok was the beginning of the new line. And you guys, Pharisees, are kind of like Abiathar. And my disciples are kind of like Zadok. You understand what's going on? It's very ironical, but very wise on God's part, on Jesus' part, to point it to them. And you bet they understood what he meant. I mean, he's talking to the leading elite of the temple who's supposed to know Scripture back and forth. And he tells them, he starts by saying, haven't you read? Here's this Galilean um, rabbi with his heavy Galilean accent telling the elite of the temple, haven't you read? Once you see what's going on, you understand it with its context, it makes perfect sense. He really meant Abiathar and there's no contradiction. Okay? The case of Jericho is easy, actually, because it's both. It's on the way in and on the way out. Recent archaeological digs showed that at the time of Jesus, there was already an ancient Jericho. So there was modern Jericho at times of Jesus, and there was an ancient one. The ancient one, the old Jericho, was where all the lepers and all those who were unclean lived. And the new Jericho were where all the good folks lived. So, 
One account tells us that Jesus was actually going into old Jericho, and the other account tells us that he was actually going out of new Jericho. That's it. It's simple, isn't it? But the point is that it's not in Scripture. You don't see a footnote in Scripture that says, by the way, the Holy Spirit inspired me to add to those who will come after me and who will not know this, that there was actually an old Jericho and a new Jericho. None of that is in Scripture. It's not the purpose of Scripture to do that. Because you can't read Scripture alone. Alright? Yes. There were two. You're right, there were two. But in the other account, he focuses, the focus is only on one of them and he's named Bartimaeus. The other was not. Presumably because Bartimaeus was known by the community. Okay? Every time a name occurs in Scripture, it is because that person's name is known. Okay? So, one account just focuses on the guy who was known, the other one focuses on both of them and doesn't name them. Good point. Now, the Passover. The Passover is more complicated. I'm going to try to summarize it. And again, in Luke, you will find a whole account over this. There is a, um, a theologian by the name of Annie Jobert. She's French. And she did her research, her doctoral thesis, on the dating of the Passover. It's a fairly well-known problem. The fathers of the church did not know how to resolve that issue. St. Jerome knew about it. St. Irenaeus knew about it. Many of the saints knew about it. And they simply said, well, we don't know. And we have to wait for the Holy Spirit to help us understand. Well, the Holy Spirit helped us understand that through, again, archaeology. At the time of Jesus, there were actually four groups. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, um, the, Pharisees, the, Sadducees, the Herodians, and the Essenes. And the essence is that community that lived outside of Jerusalem from which we got all those Dead Sea Scrolls that we hear about. Now, they lived outside of Jerusalem because as they rode themselves, they could not stand the stench that came out of the temple because they considered all the people running, running the temple corrupt. So they lived outside the temple. The interesting thing in Jerusalem is that there is actually a gate called the Essen Gate. And that Essen Gate is close to the Essen Quarters. And guess where the upper room is? In the Essen quarters in Jerusalem. Why is that important? Because you see, according to the laws of Exodus, you were supposed to date Passover based on a, on a, on a solar calendar. But about a hundred years before Christ, the... the, the the rulers decided to switch over to the lunar calendar. So by the time of Christ, the temple was calculating Passover based on a lunar calendar, whereas the essence remained faithful to a solar calendar. They never deviated from it. So you do a little bit of calculations and you will find out that Passover, according to the solar calendar, would have fallen that day on a Tuesday, that year on a Tuesday. Whereas according to the lunar, it would have fallen on a Saturday. And if you think that Jesus went through four, four uh, trials, four. The, the Sanhedrin, Pilate, uh, Herod, Pilate, four. And if you imagine that from Thursday evening to Friday morning, in the middle of the night... Pilate and Herod would have stayed all night going through trials about an obscure rabbi over an obscure debate that the Jews were having kind of be a little bit highly unlikely. It is more likely that it took between from Tuesday to Friday to try Jesus. Incidentally, Holy Thursday has been instituted as a tradition, but it is not inscribed anywhere. Okay? What is the lesson learned from all of this? That we can't just rely on Scripture to understand Scripture. We need a lot more. And the literal sense is not as straightforward as we might want it to be. It is tricky. We have to be careful. And we have to train our minds to read Scripture according to the mind of the church. And we're going to do that with a couple of passages today. I'm going to go over some of those very quickly because I want to give you a taste to what it would mean to read Scripture in this way. If we go to Genesis chapter 1, yes, Annie, A-N-N-I-E, Jobert, 
uh, J A U B as in baby E R T the dating of the Passover she actually quotes a number of saints who says in passing that Jesus celebrated the Passover on Tuesday okay, and there's no argument given right, so I think she is the one who makes the best case for explaining how the dating works. So if we go to Genesis and we read the first account of creation, which today has taken huge importance in light of creationism versus evolu you know, evolution in the teaching of the sciences. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon, the, was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. Right there, and then we just stop right there, and we simply ask ourselves, how do we read that literal sense? Remember what I said last time, there is the literal sense, and then there is the proximate literal sense. In other words, when we read this, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without, without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. Is that an actual physical description of the universe? Is that meant to be taken as a scientific description of how the universe was? Obviously not. Obviously not. Why? Because God and the Holy Spirit works with what they are given. The understanding of the ancient was that the universe was a sphere. Earth was in the middle. There were the waters of the heavens. Remember when the flood was opened? We said that God opened the, the, the flood gates and the water fell. So it wasn't just water of the clouds. It was way above the clouds. And then there's the deep. So it's a big bowl containing another bowl, bowl sitting in the middle. That's their understanding, of the physical understanding of the universe. So God works with that. God works with that. Now, I would like to hasten and say to you that if we think that our understanding of the universe is now... Um, much closer to the truth, I would beg to differ. I would beg to differ. How many of you have heard of string theory? Okay. According to string theory, which tries today to join two fundamental theories we have, one that deals with big objects, right, the theory of relativity, that Einstein brought forth, and the other one dealing with very small objects, quantum theory. The problem with these two theories, the general theory of relativity, deals with big things. And quantum theory deals with very small things. And typically, they don't mix. You're either studying big things or studying small things. And the, the physicists knew that the two didn't really completely work together. Because if you apply the general theory of relativity to the small objects, it, it, it led to absurd results. But they were happy because this embarrassment was kind of hidden because you either work with big things or small things. Enter black holes. Black holes are those things that suck light in and everything else. And there is in a black hole something called a point of singularity, which is sort of the center of that black hole. And, it's, and the center of singularity actually is a very, very, very small thing with a big mass. Ouch. You've got to use both of them, and now you're in trouble. So advances have been made to unify the four basic forces of the universe, including the force, including the force of gravity, and hence comes string theory. It's a theory, I would add. However, according to string theory, the universe is made of 11 dimensions. Not three, 11. It unfurls along four of them, three spatial and one temporal, and the remaining lines are only, you can only sense them beneath Planck constant. 
which is 10 to the minus uh, 27, I believe, or 47. Meaning, you cannot ever see them, okay? Now, we think that space is made of void, right? Empty. But you talk to a physicist and he'll tell you there's no such thing as empty. Empty is actually very rich in matter and antimatter. We really understand the universe we live in? I don't think so. If there is one constant in science, is that science constantly makes mistakes. You've talked, you've talked to Einstein or to the 19th century scientists, they would tell you the universe was eternal. No beginning and no end. That was supposed to be scientific theory. Back then they believed in ether. Why? Because sound travels in waves. It needs something to travel in. It travels in, in the atmosphere. While light is also a wave, which is true. It's also a particle, which is true. But as a wave, it needs to travel into something. Well, they came up with the ether. It travels in ether. And there were physicists studying ether. And they had a whole books written. And if we were studying physics back then, we would say there's ether. Well, Einstein comes along and dispels the whole theory of ether. Doesn't need it. Provides us with the theory of relativity. And we have now a better tool to understand the universe. But then, we can't account for the whole mass of the universe. If we look at all that stuff out there, if we look at our galaxy, right? The galaxy is a bunch of stars, and they, stay, they stick together like a gang. But, but in order for a mass like this to stick together, you need to have a certain mass. And if you just add all the mass in the universe, the one we see, if, if that's the mass of the galaxy, it should disperse. There is not enough mass to keep it together. So they came up with dark matter. All right? Now we have dark matter. What is it? Well, it's matter we cannot see. Ah. Hmm. Furthermore, they just discovered not too, not too long ago that the universe is expanded, expanding faster than what they thought. Things are moving faster from each other. So, guess what they came up with now? There is this mysterious force in which everything is basking which works against the, the, the force of gravity and it's pushing things away. So everything is basking in this mysterious force. Shall we call it ether? We don't necessarily understand things. We have more complicated terms and, and we can speak, we sound more intelligent. I think we're closer, but we're not that close. We're not done. So if there's one thing I want to dispel right now is the clout that science has. I'm speaking as a scientist. I'm not bragging I have a PhD in computer science. My thesis is in computation geometry and graph theory. I'm a mathematician. I love science. I truly love science. I am a scientist at heart. But science, above else, makes mistakes, and a ton of them. So let's not use... Let's not fight against science and come up with this notion that God necessarily created everything in 24 hours. Maybe he did, but maybe not. We don't need this. But let's not turn around and take science and make it into a priesthood. We need to keep the two fields separate. So going back to our text, my point to you is that when I read this, what am I supposed to get out of it? In other words, why didn't God tell Moses to write about string theory and ether and ethereal relativity and all those good... Didn't God know about all that? I mean, he made the place. Why, why, why didn't he write about this? Another question. Why can't I find any indication of extraterrestrial life in this book? Why didn't God say, oh, by the way, don't even bother looking anywhere else. You're the only ones around here. Or, why didn't he say, the whole bunch of other guys that you have to go and convert. Why? What would be so strange to the mind of an ancient if God said, on some other place in this universe, I also have people living there? Okay. What's the big deal? We, to, to us, it's a huge deal. But to them, it would not have been a big deal. What's the difference if it's across the waters or across the space? So why doesn't God say all this? Easy. It's not necessary for our salvation. We don't need all that to be saved. I don't need to know that the universe is made of 11 dimensions to go to heaven. Do I? I don't. 
So what is then the principle of knowledge? What is scripture telling us about knowledge? Knowledge has one purpose, only. It is to increase our love of God. That's all. That's the purpose of knowledge. We know, as St. Thomas says, to love more. And we love more to know more. But if my, seek, my, my seeking of knowledge is not motivated by the love of God, it is useless. However good and worthy it is, it's useless. So in Scripture, God uses forms and words to express something about the truth that we need to know about. So when he says, the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters, what is he really trying to say? He's trying to say, okay guys, you've got to get this one right. Before I did anything, there was no life. I am the source and origin of everything that moves in this place. There's only me. Why does he need to say that? Because of the context. These books, we believe today, are, were written down, were transformed from oral tradition to written tradition when the Israelites found themselves in exile in Babylon. When they were shipped to Babylon, they got to Babylon. What did Babylon look like? Well, you had the seven, the seven um, suspended gardens of Babylon, and you had the temple of Marduk, and you have all the beautiful temples. What did Babylon look like? New York. People were just walking on the sidewalks, busy with their cell phones and pagers, and, you know, you had the equivalent of McDonald's, and all that good stuff was back then, you know. And you enter into the temple of Marduk. When you get to the gates, you see these two huge winged lions, golden. You get inside, and you see these statues. And here you are, a little Israelites, and your friends, because you've been there for some time now. You settle down. You're a teenager. And your friend says, this is, look. Look at this temple. Look at our God. Look how powerful it is. Well, what does your God look like? Well, we don't know. Well, what is his name? Well, I can't say. Huh. You looked really cool, didn't you? Walking along with all these turban things and the weird look and then your feast and the things you can't do. Wow, how Catholic you looked. Do you understand the context? You go back and you read the Enuma Elish, which is the account of creation. Enuma Elish. E-N-U-M-A. Elish, E-L-I-S-H. You can find it on the net. It is the Babylonian account of creation. That's what was taught to the youth. That was the, 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 that was the official propaganda back then. That was the PC thing to say. The universe, man was created how? Right? There was Gaia, which, is, which we know Earth. Right? You know, those, those folks today who, who, who want to worship Gaia, well, it comes back from the Babylonians, right? And Gaia was the mother of all the gods, and she made a bunch of gods first. And Marduk was the first one of them. And then Marduk and his mom got into an argument, and it went pretty nasty. So his mom spewed a bunch of demons, well, not demons, monsters, to go fight against Marduk. But Marduk and the other guys were stronger than his mom and the other guys, and he killed his mom, and he killed the monsters, and the gods reigned, and they were quiet. However... There was a problem for the gods. They had menial chores to do, taking care of things and cleaning things up, and they got tired of doing it. So Marduk said, okay, no, don't sweat it, you guys. I got a solution for you. My version may be slightly more modern than what you find in the text, but that's the essence of it. I'm going to make a creature to take care of these menial things. So he went down, took a dragon that he had slain, the blood of the dragon, mingled it with earth, and made man. What was the purpose of man? To work for the gods. Now, think about it. What did the Babylonian believe then about man? He's half good, half evil. Okay? Because he's made of the blood of the dragon and the goodness of the earth. Half good, half evil. We still have that today around us. Oh, well, it's human nature. What can you do? Right? And that's why Catholics need to correct themselves and say, no, this is fallen human nature, not human nature. 
So the text was penned to teach about what? Notice the Babylonian account. It is very chaotic. It uses all these different forces and the world comes together in pain, in war, in destruction. The biblical account is striking because it is reasonable. It accords with reason. God says it happens. Everything happens in harmony. Everything is geared towards beauty, towards goodness. And it's the only account, by the way. How many of you have heard of C.S. Lewis? Do you know how he converted, he became a Christian? What converted him? He was a mythologist. He studied mythologies. That's what he did for a living. And he knew about the mythologies of the world. And then when he got to the Bible and read the book of Genesis, he was done. He knew this could not be written by human hands. The order, the rational order of creation, the repetition of it is good, it was good, it was good. And when God creates man, what does God say? What does he say? It was very good. It was very good. The only affirmation in the entire antiquity about the nature of man being 100% good. The only place you will find it is in Scripture. Do you think this is relevant to our life today? You bet. You bet. In a world bent on turning babies into enemies. In a world bent on making children an obstacle to man and woman's fulfillment. We must constantly affirm the text of Genesis. It is very good. That's what the first purpose of the text is. God's sovereignty, God's complete and utter goodness, His complete mastery of the universe. The universe follows reason. The text is about our reason. The text gets us out of superstition. You understand? You live under the Enuma Elish, you will live in the world of superstition, where natural things have supernatural powers. The text of Genesis devoid nature of any supernatural power. Nature is beautiful just as it is. We don't need gods. We don't need the planets to tell us what our future is. We don't need any of that. This is the power of the text. It is, in that sense, very scientific. And I will add this. As a Catholic, you are allowed, you are permitted to hold to a literal literalistic meaning and saying God created in, 20, in, in, in six days. You're allowed to hold to that position. The Catholic Church does not for, for, forbid you from doing it. You're not allowed to affirm it dogmatically because the Church has not done that. But I will point out to you this. The reference, the reference point that you will find here when said, God said let there be light and there was light and God said that light was good and then God said let there be a firmament and God said, let the waters under the heaven. If you really pay attention to the, to, the, to the word of Scripture, you will see that the point of reference is not earth-based. It's actually cosmic. It's from the point of view of the whole cosmos. If you hold on to this position, and if you understand the, even the, the, um, the special theory of relativity of Einstein, which is not as complicated as the general theory of relativity, you will understand that if you measure, if you measure, the time elapsed for those first 24 hours, cosmically, versus the time elapsed on Earth. In other words, if you measure, if you ask yourself this question, how long, how long, how much time did, did it elapse for the universe to go through the first 24 hours measured from Earth? You know, the theory of relativity says that time is relative. It is not absolute. Okay? If you do this measurement, you'll find out that for the first day, those 24 hours equate to 8 billion years. 8 billion years. The second day, you split it by 4. It's, it's inversely exponential. It's going down. The second day is 4. The third is 2. The fourth is 1. The fifth is half. The sixth 
is a quarter. And at the end of the sixth, the reference to time becomes earth-based. You total that up, you get 13.75 billion years. So you see, it may be just the case that it's actually both. We don't have to fight. And what we do not admit is the atheistic theory of evolution. The notion that things came up on their own and man is the product of randomness. Why? It isn't because we're concerned with randomness. And it isn't because we cannot think that we could have evolved from apes. We don't have any problem with that. If science can establish that, so be it. The fundamental problem with this approach is that it denies the supernatural soul of man. That's why we cannot accept it. It says that if man is purely the product of natural evolution, and since the soul is supernatural, it could not have been the product of that natural evolution. It is extra-physical. It's metaphysical. Therefore, if this was to be the case, then we are not made in the image of God. We are not eternal beings. And all the Bible is wrong. You understand where the issue is? That's where the issue is. Beyond that, God took six days or four billion years to make us. What do I care? It's his job. There were dinosaurs. There were no dinosaurs. He had dinosaurs. He didn't have dinosaurs. It's his business. It's not mine. I mean, when was the last time I created a universe? What do I know? You understand? You don't have to be uptight about it. You have to fight the good fight in understanding how certain people are using science to pursue atheistic philosophies. And that we do not want. We want science to be just science. Right? Likewise, we want faith to be faith. I don't want books that says, oh, well, you know, the universe, we know that the problem with our dating in the universe is that light takes so long to move, 300,000 uh, kilometers per second. Well, the universe is so much larger. How do we explain that? Well, God could have made light appear everywhere. Well, maybe he could. But I don't need that. I don't need to plaster science with statements of faith simply because I'm afraid. I need to deal with the problem at its root, but I have to respect scientists and accept the scientific method of investigation. That's the Catholic position, in a nutshell. I, don't, I, I could spend more time on this, but I don't have time, and uh, we have to move on. The other text I want to point out to you is the creation of man and woman, because this one is really important. In the second uh, account, you will see that it says, In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and, and, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden and then he told this living being, you go and work there. Okay? And then after that, you notice in this account, verse 18, so verse 19, so out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air. You notice that in the second account of creation, animals have been created after man. Even though in the first one it seems to indicate that it is the beast and then man. But you could, there's no contradiction there because the order in the first account is not set. But let's focus a second on the second. Let's focus a little bit on the second account. One, one problem we have with the Bible is familiarity. We're so familiar with the text that we just read it without, you know, without any surprise. I just want you to think about it for a second. Okay. You're, you're the guy writing the story. Okay? You're the one sitting down and, and, and inspired by the Holy Spirit. You're, you're writing down that stuff. So, you say, alright, um, there was nothing. And then, God made, made up man and then he planted him in a garden. And, and so, so far, so good. It's beautiful. Right? Um... And then you eat, you, you add. So at this point, you're really talking about these big things. God created, 
you know, there was nothing, and then God created man from the earth and breath, the, the breath of life in, his life in him, and he brought him to the Garden of Eden, and then you add, to till it and keep it. It'd be like you're watching Cinderella, alright, or Snow White. And it's that point where Snow White or Cinderella is meeting the prince and they're going to get married. And right as they're going to go down the aisle, a guy show up and tap the prince on the shoulder and says, you forgot the tip. Do you understand how, 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 how the sonority of this is wrong? You're way up there. You're 10,000 feet high. You're in the mystical stuff to till it and keep it. Kind of, here's the maid. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? It doesn't sound right. It's like you have this beautiful orchestra. It's playing this, the, the, the Ninth Symphony of Beethoven, and this guy shows up with a harmonica. Do you, you see what I'm saying? Okay. It's done on purpose. It's done to attract our attention. That's the crux of the matter. That's why I'm writing to you. To till it and keep it. That's the important point, because it's the thing that stands up. That's how you have to read scripture. So keep that in mind. Now, something really odd here. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Huh. God is speaking, right? God is speaking. So it sounds like God took a first shot and created man, and put him there. Now he's sort of watching him, you know, God has an HDV screen, sitting in front of it, and he's just watching Adam in, in the Garden of Eden, just going around, and God says, hmm, there's something missing there. I, I, there's something missing, I've got to do something about it. And then how odd, God then proceeds to do what? He forms every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would do with them. What he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So God looks at him and says, huh, he doesn't seem to be happy. I'm going to make him a cat and a cow and a dog and, and a, you know, a bunch of animals. I'm going to bring him to him and just watch and see what he's going to do. Huh. Is there something wrong? You know, right, right there, you have a problem. Because God could not have made a mistake. So obviously, the writer is not trying to attract our attention to the fact that somehow, scientifically, God messed up. You know? He deployed creation versus 1.0. Whoops, there's a bunch of bugs. All right, we'll, we'll deploy a patch, 1.1. Ah, that's better. It's not what's going on here. We have to be reading Scripture slowly. And we have to pay attention to those details. And we have to hold to the knowledge that the church told us about Scripture. There are no errors there. So when I don't understand something, and I am faced with a difficulty, I do not conclude, oh, well, obviously something is wrong with the Bible. I should rather conclude, oh, well, obviously something is wrong with me. I'm not getting it. And a thousand difficulties do not add up to one doubt. A thousand difficulties do not add up to one doubt. It's a difficulty that I'm having. It isn't in the text. It's in me. And that's how Scripture helps me see me. You understand? I don't have time to explain all there is in this text, otherwise we'll be here forever. I would recommend to you who... It's, it's a tough text to read, but there is, there's been a lot of work around it. Uh, John Paul II wrote a book called The Theology of the Body, and he, it's, half of the book is just on this one chapter. All right? Where he deals, he goes through it, and, and he brings it all up, and it's just beautiful. And uh, I don't remember the name of that one... Thank you, thank you. Christopher West, that's my recommendation. Christopher West. Search him up, you know, Google Christopher West and buy his tapes. Christopher West. Okay. Um, the last text I'd like to touch upon, again, in the same vein. You understand, I'm not trying to explain to you the text right now. I am trying to point out to you 
how we may approach scripture with the proper literal sense. We have to see the text around. We have to understand the background. We need to understand the mind of the church. And we have to understand the language that was used. When we combine all these things and put them together, scripture comes to life. I just want to point one other text um, tonight. And that is in 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, the reason why I want to point this, because this one is relevant to, all these texts, by the way, are relevant to the book of the Apocalypse. We're going to go again over each one of them and understand those symbols better. But right now, I can't do that. But bear with me, we're going to get to it. This passage in the book of Thessalonians, the first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 4, is at the foundation of so many misleading interpretations of the book of the Apocalypse. Especially those verses. Verse 13, But we would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So he's speaking to his fellow Christians in Thessalonica, and he's basically telling them about those who died. Presumably, they've asked him, what about those who died? And he says to them, don't worry. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. That is our foundation for our belief in the resurrection of the dead through Jesus Christ. Right? One of our foundations in Scripture. So far, so good. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, by the word of the Lord, so this is, that, though this is absolutely true, that we who are alive, now listen carefully, we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord. Okay. That's where you absolutely have to control the literal sense. Right? Who's Paul talking to? Is he talking to the 20th century, 21st century Americans in San Diego? Does it even cross his mind? Oh, let me see. Oh, yeah, right. There's going to be those guys who dress kind of really strange. You know, and, 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 and do a bunch of stuff that are really weird. But I've got to tell them now, 2,000 years early, about something that's going to be important to them. You think this is how it works? No. Can be, right? Why? Because God respects who we are and uses our reason to express his truth. We need to leave it to the three other senses of Scripture, which we're going to see later. But literally, he cannot be talking about this. He's not talking about this. He's talking to the folks in Thessalonica. But he's saying something strange, isn't he? He's saying, Who are left until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. We shall not precede. We're left until the coming of the Lord, but we will not precede precede those who are fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then, we who are alive. Again, who is he talking to? Who is he talking to? Thessalonica, 2,000 years ago. We've got a hold to this. Alright? We can be so baffled by the text that we skew the literal sense to suit our Anxiety. Can't do that. It's a difficulty, but we can't do that. We have to face it honestly. Alright? Then we who are alive, who are left, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. You've heard of the rapture? How many of you have heard of the rapture? Here it is. That's the one single verse on which the whole series of movies is based. Right there. That's it. We're caught up in the clouds. Okay? We'll meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Okay. So, one understanding is, when the Lord Jesus will come back, he'll be on a horse, and he'll have, he'll have, he'll, he'll have his cowboy suit on. And he'll have this lasso, and he'll just catch us, he'll catch us, and he'll lift us up in the... Cumulonimbus, maybe 2,000 feet above Earth. Maybe that's too cold. Let's drop it down a little bit. 
I, I always like to ask them these questions. Right? How, how high? I mean, is it 600 feet? Is it big rainy clouds? Or is it those thin ones? And by the way, what does it mean to be caught in the cloud? Am I in the middle of it? I mean, all of you who've traveled went in the cloud, right? What do you see there? Nothing. Perfect. So here we are, a bunch of guys floating in the middle of the cloud. We see nobody. Or is it that we're sitting like Peter Pan on the cloud? How do you do that? Do you understand the difficulty of translating this in a very literalistic? That makes no sense. What's up with Paul talking about being caught up in the cloud? I mean, couldn't he have said, God will raise us up on Mount Zion, and the angels will carry us, and he will protect us. What, what's, what's up with this cloud business? What, 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 so, you know, what, what if you're in a desert? You're a missionary in Saudi Arabia. There are no clouds there. What's God going to do? Just create a cloud right there? I mean, you understand the difficulty when you try to understand it this way? It just does not hold up. On the other hand, you're faced with another difficulty. Paul is very emphatic. Listen carefully. <clears throat> the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. There are a number of commentators, a number of commentators, who essentially said, not just about Paul, that text is also in Peter. Peter says, Jesus is coming soon. He's going to come soon. Alright? Their comment, comment, the, the comment they had is that Peter and Paul got it wrong. They were so excited about the whole thing, about the second coming, that they thought it was just going to happen tomorrow. And they managed to confuse and mislead a whole bunch of Christians. Do you think so? Do you think Paul got it wrong? Okay. Well, let me answer this question. If Paul didn't get it wrong, did Christ come? Were they caught up with him in the cloud? Did this happen? Yes or no? If you say no, we have a problem. Right? As they say in Houston, we have a problem. If you say yes, I'd be interested to hear your argument. You understand how the literal sense is absolutely important? Okay, I've, I know I've extended my time, but I'm not going to leave you hanging. The key, I'm not going to explain to the whole, the whole passage. I'm just going to explain <clears throat> a little bit of it. Because, again, I don't have time to do the whole study right now, but we will come back to those themes later. All right. <clears throat> the key, the key is the word cloud and air. Obviously, Paul is not thinking literally as in a big puff of water sitting up there in the sky. That's not what he has in mind when he speaks of a cloud. Why am I saying that? Go back to Exodus. What happened to the mountain when God came? When God came and the Israelites were brought at the foot of the mountain and God was going to speak to them, what was, the, what was around the mountain? Cloud. Huh. When Jesus took Peter, James, and John up the mountain and Elijah and Moses appeared to them, what happened right after that? They were in the cloud, and the voice came from the cloud, right? Okay, that's the cloud Paul has in mind. What is this cloud? The Holy Spirit. Hmm? Air. Remember when Jesus met with Nicodemus? What does he say to him? The wind, the air flows where it wills. Wind, pneuma, in Greek, as in Arabic, has dual meaning. It means the spirit, it means air. 
Okay? So, Paul then is saying that Christ will come down and we will be caught up with him in the Spirit. Now, let me ask you this question. Does this have ever, has this ever happened to you? Were you ever in a situation where Christ came down and you were caught up with him in the Spirit? Yes. Every Sunday. Every Sunday without fail. Christ comes down. Body, blood, soul, divinity. And what does the priest do before pronouncing the words of consecration? It is strongest in the Eastern Rites than it is in the Latin Rite, but it's also present in the Latin Rite. It's called the Epiclesis. The coming of the Holy Spirit. We call upon the Holy Spirit. And the cloud is right behind. And we are caught up in the cloud. And the Lord has come down. You understand? Paul is speaking liturgically. We miss the point because we don't understand mass. It's not formless in our mind. You see how it works? That's what he intends. There's more to it insofar as the judgment of God is concerned and other things we're going to see later. But that's how you deal with it. Understanding scripture in the context of the church. Without it, you will get the text to say wonderful things. Christ is John Wayne flying on a horse and he's just swooping us up in some, some cumulonimbus cloud up there and we're going to sit with him pretty. You know, it's pretty damp as far as I'm concerned. Without the church, you can get scripture to say whatever you want. You understand? So, what I would like you to do for next time. Next time we're going to move on to the spiritual senses. We're going to move on. I can't spend more time on the literal sense. But it's your duty, your job, to now understand that you have to be very attentive to the word of scripture. And when you read it, You've got to slow down, you've got to roll up your sleeves, and you've got to work at it. And when you face a difficulty, you say, Lord, forgive my ignorance, and glory be to your name. That's what you say. And help me understand your word. Help me see your face. Amen? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.